A song with a never-ending outro. A pop-influenced exploration of punk ideas. And a track with one of the most adventurous mixes we've ever heard. You're listening to Themes and Variation. Themes and Variation is a podcast about music and perspectives brought to you by the online music school Soundfly. I'm your host, Carter Lee. All right, folks, another Themes and Variation coming at you. Today we are talking about songs that do something incorrectly. Now, of course, I'm a big believer in art and music. You can't make it wrong you know it's just you put it out and it's going to be subjective to those that experience it on their own so you got to separate the word incorrect from wrong a little bit these are not wrong songs these are songs that do things maybe different from the conventional approaches to production composition mixing these are just tracks that go against the grain and joining me for this deep dive into some unique tracks is the one and only producer, composer, and bassist. You may have heard him a few times on this podcast before, Mr. Martin Fowler. And joining Marty and I are his bandmate, the incomparable vocalist, songwriter, and award-winning composer, Laura Fay Oshavud. Laura Fay is also the leader of one of my favorite bands, the genre-bending group Arthur Moon who WNYC calls an artist bent of upending your expectations of what a pop song should sound like. And we get into all kinds of things on this episode, like what it means to make incorrect music, translating creative production techniques to a live band setting, and getting creative through collaboration. And as a special announcement, I have to let you know, folks, that the one and only RJD2 is going to be joining us for a live Q&A session on Thursday, September 23rd at 4 p.m. Eastern. This is an exclusive event for Soundfly subscribers, but fret not, as you heard on the pre-roll, you can use the discount code BACKTOWORK, that's all one word and all caps, to take 20% off a monthly or annual subscription before September 10th. So in addition to all of the incredibly extensive courses that you get with your Soundfly subscription, like RJD2 from Samples to Songs, you'll be able to join us for this exclusive event and chat one-on-one with one of the most creative artists making music today. And please be sure to subscribe to Themes and Variation on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and toss us a rating if you feel so inclined. That's going to do it for me. Let's get into the episode songs that do something incorrectly all right folks another themes and variation coming at you i am joined by mr marty fowler marty how you doing hey 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 i'm good <laughs> you're good awesome awesome i gotta put together a super clip of you just going hey, 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 hey or like other just exact, there it is that's the one uh well marty i'm stoked because we have your bandmate i'm a huge fan of uh arthur moon of course and the incredible Laura Fay Oshavud. Laura Fay, how you doing? I'm great. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm gonna try not to embarrass you too much. Oh God. Okay. That's never good when he <laughs> says that. <laughs> I'm so excited now. So excited. And I was excited before because we are talking songs that do something incorrectly. I think for me, the incorrect is very tongue-in-cheek. I mean uh, Laura Fay, I've seen you describe Arthur Moon's music as, as quote-unquote, incorrect. What does incorrect music mean to you? Um, I think I started thinking about 
the phrase because I kept realizing that I was like doing things that I wasn't supposed to do. Like we would be mm. arranging something or writing a harmony or like listening to vocals that that I thought sounded really great. And then someone would be like, those are like really out of tune or like you can't, you know, <laughs> it's not you can't, but, you know, it's weird that you would put these, you know, notes together because like that's wrong or whatever. And then I realized that usually those were the things I loved the most about my music and about other people's music. And I was like, why is it that I like that? And uh, and it's because I guess because whatever is incorrect about it is the thing that seems like interesting and exciting and unique. Uh, so I know I know what you both selected for this theme. Were there any tracks that you considered that you didn't end up landing on? Uh, I have one, which is, um, I don't know, maybe I'll just end up talking about it the whole time. So sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I was really considering this recording by um, the Alabama Sacred Harp Singers. Um, they're like shape note singers. I think the recording is like a, I think it's like a Lomax recording or something like that. Um, and the, speaking of weird tuning, the tuning is just like totally, absolutely nuts. And so I kind of wanted to talk about that. Marty, anything that uh, came to mind other than the track that you settled on? I mean, definitely. There's there's so many possibilities. If anything, I think it's sort of like it, it's a it's a category of music I have sort of archived in my brain at this point. Especially there are mm. there are certain artists who reliably do incorrect things. I I essentially we we got to this this uh, topic and I was like, which Bjork song do I pick? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So there's there's of plenty of fodder for incorrect music. Mm, uh, well, I'm I'm ready to dive into some tracks. Let's let's maybe listen to our first selection, get into the discussion, and get going. So here is the very first track. Happened to be my selection for the episode. So, folks, we're listening to my Jinji from Sunset Roller Coaster. Um, not to break the fourth wall or anything, but Lorfe, you're mentioning you guys actually know Sunset Roller Coaster a little bit. We we uh, shared a bill with them and have like sort of hung out with them a little bit um, because of a, a mutual friend and and uh, industry person um, named Mia Minyan. Um, they're just like lovely people who are incredibly talented <laughs> and super down to earth and. Um, just really cool i remember though we i think we were opening for them at baby's all right and they're like mm. i think they're like a 10 piece or something they're like a <laughs> really? huge band and i like walked in 
to like you know sound check and they were like still setting up for their <laughs> from their sound check mention as far as the discovery for me uh my former bandmate and and good friend mr jesse perlman uh when i was in the marias we were on tour i cannot remember at all where we were because as you guys know it just like kind of bleeds together when you're in the van like every city looks exactly like the next one that you're in one of the best things about touring is just kind of i think getting to experience everybody's musical tastes in that moment um i think i was driving the van and we had this cable that was just getting passed around and putting new tracks on everything jesse it's like you gotta hear this track now the reason you wanted me to hear this track we'll get into a little bit later with the outro for sure because that's why i picked this whole song is is the outro of it but i was floored by it i absolutely loved it it has that shoegazy kind of very relaxed vibe there's some interesting harmony going on i'm gonna assume maybe you'd heard this track then before maybe you saw it even performed live yeah yeah we've heard i've heard it before have you marty awesome yeah definitely love that sort of warm 70s vibe you know exactly yeah quick note about the band uh 10 piece live uh, i'm gonna assume I, I think i found somewhere it was a six piece jazz uh influence synth pop band from taipei uh, their name originated from a photo booth picture the group had taken for their MySpace, that takes me way back, uh, profile in 2009, which had a roller coaster in front of a sunset as the background. That's so sweet and lovely. Um, that is as, where as did... wholesome as they are. <laughs> where, is, there, is there a fun origin story for the name Arthur Moon? Um, yeah, the, the, um, <laughs> the, the ghost slash alter ego of Marcel Duchamp, whose name is Eros spelled R-R-O-S-E-S-E-L-A-V-Y, but which like sounds in French like Eros Selavi is life. Um, that was Duchamp's uh, alter ego. Anyway, she came to me in a dream and she told me to be Arthur Moon. I love that. That is much heavier than I've heard like many band name origin stories, right? Usually it's like maybe you go to bandnamegenerator.com or something like that. But that is that is awesome. I love that. And we aspire to be as spooky and ethereal in our music as that story is. <laughs> I love that. Um, just to, to touch on the, the court, because there's like two distinct sections. And we'll, we'll see that when we look at the form. Uh, which to me is where we get into more of the, the quote-unquote incorrect nature of this track. You have the intro. I, I mean, the, the whole first section's in E minor. Um, the intro just kind of floats between the three and the flat, or the flat three and the flat six. Um, you have the one minor seven, the five minor seven, the four minor seven. That's kind of where we're, we're floating, just like very traditional kind of, you'll hear a lot of those chords in this style of music for sure. We get some new harmony uh, by hanging on that C major chord that slips into a C minor nine. Really, really cool modulation that I'm going to play for you right now. Sophisticated, but even kind of simple enough. You have the, the C major seven slip into C minor nine. 
works. There's a lot of common tones. The root, the fifth, the ninth are going to be shared. And the third and the seventh just get dropped on a half step. So that, that kind of thing, hearing that really perks my ears up a lot. This whole second section uh, is all just in C minor. We have some modal borrowing chords. I'm not going to go too deep into the, the heavy, heavy side of the theory, but it's really interesting. Constant structure, C minor 7, B minor 7, and A minor 7. Now we get to maybe the uniqueness of this track uh, and maybe the what some might view as incorrect uh, about it. So the form is particularly unique. Once we're in the modulation, we get that guitar solo. This whole set of changes, just 10 bars in length, a 10-bar phrase, I think pretty unique length of, of phrase to repeat. Um, it is repeated once we get past the guitar solo 11 times. So for an outro oh to take a section like that and to play it over and over and over, I can't think of another song that stretches it like this, has a song that never ends vibe, <laughs> like, like very much. Is there any songs that come to mind that kind of give a similar kind of approach to to an outro sounds like you're describing hey jude a little bit Mm. a little bit yeah yeah except in hey jude it's like oppressive i'm like really ready for it to be over (laughs) (laughs) and it's not even 110 bars of it yeah well i should count before i say that but (laughs) yeah this this and this is why you know jesse hit me to this track and why i needed to hear it was you have to listen to the way they decide to end this song so i want to have a listen to that uh with you both you're gonna make us listen to all 100 yeah i'm gonna bars. yeah just to make sure you get it just right we're gonna listen to all six minutes now <laughs> i'm gonna, gonna jump in at the end here and i want to show you exactly how this track ends That's that's oh. literally, literally, <laughs> literally how the track ends. I did not remember that. So if I've heard it before, it is. Laura Faye, did you did you know how this I this one's gonna end? I didn't remember that. No. I thought for sure. Okay, the cable got unplugged from the phone, or yeah. like something got disconnected. And no, that is how the track ends. It is relentless with that melody. It gets stuck and burrowed into your ears, and then all of a sudden, just. Nope. Like literally in the middle of the phrase too. There's no reason for it. To, that was literally like, you know, nine times out of 10, that's a fade out. Right. Yeah. Bobby Caldwell's open your eyes, I think comes to mind. But that's a, 
fade out, of course. And I think, again, <laughs> most of the time the, the choice is going to be, yeah, we'll just fade that out. Yeah, especially no, no for problem. like all of the genre references they're making, like yes. a really long, yeah. smooth fade is like exactly what you would expect to happen here. I feel like it took a lot of courage to be like, no. 100%. I can't think of another song that has actually ended so abruptly and literally like it's different if it ends like at the end of a bar or at the beginning of a chord or something it's literally in the middle of a phrase and not even the the phrase that we know and and have come to know through this track after 11 times of cycling through these changes it's just now somebody just went in and automated that that specific (laughs) moment across the board and that's where the track ends i just did something like this in one of our songs uh that we had been working on that marty recorded and then like didn't hear for a while because i sat on it and i sent it to marty and kale and uh basically had done a very similar thing and they were both like no no why no (laughs) but i'm not going to change it marty it is what it is yeah kale Kale being kale hawkins Hawkins. keys keys and auxiliary and vocals and all-around amazing musician for yep. it's so good that that jarring gesture it's i love that one question for me was and i do have a question for both of you it relates to this but how does this translate live like there's they're not going to do that live it's just such a weird spot you can get on the same page as a band but this is such a strange like it'd be so difficult to like everybody make eye contact and this is where we're going to end but we're ending like on this weird like middle of the measure they do play the very last phrase uh, of the 10th bar, they play it together and just hard out at the end of that phrase. Mm. My question for, for both of you Making music like this that that is pushing boundaries, what are some of the challenges translating it from the production side of things and making a record to making it live? We do a lot of things in production that um, aren't necessarily directly translatable live, so we kind of we kind of have to create an analog emulation of whatever we've done on the record for for some things. Um, My favorite thing that which, Marty ever came up with which we're, we're not going to be doing anymore because we are no longer having Ableton on stage, which is mm. a very good feeling. But I will miss it for this reason, which is that we had this one tune where we had this like sort of beautiful looping, changing, uh, I think it was like a, I think it was like strings that we had processed, right, Marty? Yeah, string thing. Mm-hmm. It was like a big, yeah. yeah, that was the original title, a big lush chord of strings run through some kind of phaser. It was like yeah. a two-minute long loop. And it was gated to the to like a drum pattern that we then muted. Um, so it was this beautiful sort of rhythmic uh, harmonic thing that was just, it's just still, still one of my favorite sounds we've ever put out. This song is called Infield. Ableton to like make that happen live with gates and stuff like that running through the program and then back out again with triggers on the on the drums um, and on an SPD that would like open up the the gate essentially and we can't do that anymore so that would be the kind of solution we would come up with but 
Um, now we're having to do that analog, which is a little harder. <laughs> I, I got to ask, as, as I think more and more bands seek to use Ableton in, in Ableton's live and in, in a live setting, what made you guys step away from that? I think it's, um, I mean, I'll, I'll jump in and just say it's a, it's a headache. It's a mm-hmm. headache, and we're, we're lucky to work with some really unbelievably talented musicians in this band um, not speaking for myself, of course, but um, one of the things I most love that uh, we've been really leaning into over the course of the last couple of records is is these vocal hockets, um, which are often created by, well, historically by Laura Fay, just kind of like cutting up vocal bits and then placing them in the DAW mm. and then having these very sort of um, angular, sort of obtuse kind of vocal uh <sighs> riffs uh motifs that are really strange not something you would just sing naturally necessarily but then you know she and aviva j and kale hoggins come together and they figure out how to do it live and not everyone can do that not everyone has the skills to do that but they do so i think because we have uh enough of an ability to recreate things that feel like the kind of music we love without having a computer on stage it's just it's a it's sort of an evolution of transcending what the computer offers us in the production process Hey, what are we listening to? <laughs> um, Newtown by a band called uh, The Slits. I think this song came out on a record in 79. Let me double check. About, I thought, I thought right? it was 78, but maybe it was 79. It, it, late 70s, yeah. Something like that. I knew I wanted to do something from that record, and it was hard to pick this one because there are so many examples of what I love about them on that whole record. Um, which is all mostly just incorrectness. Um, speaking of made up words like footballina, <laughs> televisina, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. like she, televisina so got me for sure. I was like, wait, wait, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even from the first moment that she comes in, like the tuning is is just, it, I mean, it feels intuitively perfect. Like it wouldn't work if it were correct, you know, if it were right on the nose, um, right in the center of, of whatever it is, the pitches that she's going for. But like, I don't even really, really know what it is, um, nor do I want to. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think like the, if I'm not mistaken, and maybe I'm hallucinating this, but I'm pretty sure that like the B, even within those first like six bars that we just listened to, like the, the tempo like drastically slows down <laughs> yeah. and then speeds back mm. up again. That to me is such a, uh, it breathes so much life into a track. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that's so great about this band in general and, and probably comes from like, you know, the the punk ethos that they, you know, they were born from in the 70s and in 
London, I believe, which is like, we don't need to be straight, <laughs> as it were. We don't need to be sort of like following any grid or any set of rules. So so this song, it feels like a very, almost like pop, pop influenced, but not in like the way that we think about pop punk these days, pop influenced um, exploration of some of those those punk ideas, you know. How how did you first get hipped to this this track or or the slits? I was in college, I I think, and I have no memory of who it was that introduced me to them. I think maybe I found like a vinyl record and was like, this is wild. The cover of it is like they're naked except they're wearing like loincloths and they're covered in mud. Um, I think that might have been it. I think I just was like, this is pretty and I want it. Um, <laughs> and then listened to it and was like, wow, this is beyond what I expected. The bass playing on this track is phenomenal. Yeah. Phenomenal. There's like even there's some power chords happening too. Like I'll play those real quick. Do you think that the bass playing on the track, like in this in this framework that we're setting up, at, at least for like mm-hmm. this song in particular, is the bass pl- playing correct? Pretty. It's pretty conventional, mm-hmm. I would say. It's it's really you know it's outlining the harmony largely, and and uh, there's some stuff that's maybe a bit adventurous, um, but like that's sort of also what was happening at the time, you know the power chords on bass. I mean in the '70s, yeah, sure, it's happening all over the place. Yeah. Mm. So you know, as far as as far as uh, with context, I'd say it's adventurous, but it's not uh, it's not incorrect. Yeah, it's also like not out yeah. of tune, and like most of the guitars on this on this track are like rolling out. <laughs> I loved that about um, this. The even just like the opening sort of, they almost sound like calls of unidentified animals in a forest or something. Mm. It's very. It also it, it reminded me a little bit of the kind of production that would come out of someone like Tom Waits or David yeah. Bowie or mm. you know people of that sort of. Yeah, definitely. That sort of. Uh, ethos and mindset production wise I loved how vocal all of that was too so lay it on us what what is I don't want to say wrong but yeah (laughs) we we think it's right but what is not right about this track (laughs) okay at the beginning of the tune there's this random barely audible organ going on like to the point where like I was listening just now and I had to like pause it to make sure that it wasn't like something else happening in my house (laughs) (laughs) There are these like very like sort of clear, untouched um, percussion sounds, which is like someone's like lighting a match and and, um, sort of shaking a box of matches. And then it sounds like maybe like dropping silverware or something. And it's like not, you know, not really affected at all, Um, which I think in in this context at this time for this kind of band was pretty unusual and maybe maybe would be considered. Mm. incorrect i don't know i don't know i actually don't can't tell if it's samples or if it's someone like did a full pass at like weird sound stuff (laughs) but i i did see on the internet that uh there is a book 
Um, there's a quote from a book called Typical Girls from 2009 in which the band's bass player, Tessa Pollitt, says uh, Dennis Bovell, the album producer, added his own flavor by dropping the spoon it's a spoon and shaking this big box of matches like the tools you would use to cook up your fix because <laughs> it's about addiction Zzz. wow oh oh my god of course a spoon yeah. of course i i like sort of suspected that it like was didactic in that way interesting so that's really fine marty nice literal with that that just to yeah. uh, give credit where it's due that's from genius.com Really weird mixing yep. in general, like like coming in and out, things super under compressed, like randomly across the song, like all you can tell, like where the section where they they you know dropped in a new section and like that it was a totally different vibe, especially like the spoken stuff in the middle. Again, also sort of pushes and pulls against against the beat in a way that like just teeters on the edge of being unpleasant you know where you're like oh you're like just barely hanging on to the rhythm there <laughs> you know in yeah. the best way laura Fay, i've seen you talk about you know i, I get bored at the section so that's why we got to find something unique and and again quote unquote incorrect right so when you are from your own perspective working on something and you feel like you've hit a wall of maybe boredom with an idea how do you tap into other people as collaborators to help you get through uh, that wall. I feel like Marty should maybe answer that question. You witness it. Well, uh, you know, we have a few strategies for that. I feel like on 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 both ends, um, for for you, me, and for Kale, we we have definitely started ideas and been like, okay, I'm done with this idea. Here you go. Do something with it that'll be just inherently different than what I would do with it. Mm. Just truly pass it off. And then sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. But um, more often than not, it at least uh, sparks some ideas that are useful down the road. Um, but oftentimes, it's it's for us as a group. It's been about, especially Laura Fay coming with the 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 spark of an idea, bringing it to the group, getting in a room together, and then just letting people react to it in real time. And then she'll take that away, go go figure out what is exciting about the ideas that came out of that, and then and then bring it back in a in a more evolved form and it kind of creates a feedback loop in that way it's like um uh remember that game that you play when you're a kid where like you write a sentence or like draw the head of a monster and then you like fold you know fold it over and pass it to someone and they haven't seen what the last person did and then at the end you have this like weird sort of like frankenstein of a story or frankenstein of a drawing that's like connected but totally yeah it it often feels like (laughs) like that
Marty, 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 what are we listening Ooh. to? So we are listening to The Autumnal Crush by Clark off of his, I believe, 2006 record, Body Riddle. So Clark is an artist I've been following for a really long time. I'm just uh, so unbelievably moved by his sense of expressing a joy of life embedded within existential dread constant existential dread that I uh, that I deeply relate to shall we say <laughs> but especially in this uh, this electronic form Clark is like a peer of more well-known guys like square pusher like Aphex twin he's one of the early warped records artists you hear a lot of the sort of the breakbeat manipulation in his in his early work the same as as any of those kinds of early artists um, but I think the thing he does really well is is um, is is this ostinato form and framework. Um, he likes to pick an idea, uh, a melodic idea that has sort of an intrinsic emotive quality about it. But then, rather than develop it melodically or harmonically or in other s- sort of traditional musical formats, he'll he'll essentially make a composition out of the production that surrounds that motif. And that's really that's really what's happening in this track. Over the course of the first two and a half minutes of the song, um, you know, with the beat entering in different grades and with different levels of distortion becomes more and more sort of just vicious and out of control um, to, to the point that you really feel like you're, you're, you're driving over the edge of a cliff or something. Um, I, I felt like yeah. I was getting bit crushed to death yeah. <laughs> at, at, a, at a certain point in the track for sure. I, how did you come across Clark? I think I discovered him you know, via the, the great algorithm, praise be unto it. Um, you know, uh, Spotify's earlier days were really cool for the way that they recommended new music. It's not as effective, I find, these days. But back in the day, you know, you put in a few artists who you've heard of, people like Aphex Twin, people like Square Pusher, like The Prodigy, these sort of electronic acts. And you end up with uh, slightly slightly more obscure, more niche uh UK electronic artists like Clark, and that's I think that's honestly how I found him. Do either of you remember the name of the band that was made to sound exactly like Led Zeppelin, so that the algorithm was like meant to to like Greta Van Greta Van Fleet? Uh, there it is. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. <laughs> It's not even like derivative of let. It's like <laughs> cover band, but we changed some of the words. Uh, anyways, uh, Marty. Um, yeah, I don't even know where to start. I, I can't. I can't think of like. So let, I, I gotta talk about that. Like, just where the distortion just kind of gets like just so crazy.
Can we talk about what that is? Is it? Is it? Do you think it's a bit crush? Do you think it's so, a bit crush? Do you think it's? So my theory is it's a combination of things. Uh, Clark is is a, an extremely adept producer, and so he knows how to utilize all of the production tools available to him. So I think it's going to be a combination of levels of different types of distortion, including probably bit crushing, but also he's really great at um, uh, utilizing compression and extreme compression in really creative ways. I think my intuition is that this is one of those ways. He's basically, my theory is that in addition to ramping up the distortion that's going on, might include bit crushing, I actually think he's running the whole track through a limiter and he's altering the threshold of the limiter so that there becomes less and less dynamic range over the course of the first two minutes. So you're essentially like taking all of the, you're, turn, you're, you're keeping the loudest stuff the same level, but you're turning up the quieter part of the track higher and higher to meet all the loudest stuff until everything sounds like it's just a brick wall of sound. What really struck me listening to this the first time was I've heard outros that do that, you know, they get like just really crazy and, and uh, just everything peaked out and, and, and insane. I've never heard that done in the middle of a track. We have five more minutes left of the song after that wow. happens. And, and like that yeah. kind of, to me was like the mission of, of this track was like, what if I take that, that idea of just like supercharging the end of a song with the distortion and just like all kinds of crazy and compression and, and all kinds of extreme production techniques. What if I put that in the middle of the song and then what, what happens then? And to me, what happened to me was like, I could not, for the life of me recall what happened before that section when i got to the end of the song i had no idea what what had occurred before that i was trying to remember like without listening to it again it's like how does a song how does it start like it, it erased my mind like it was it was quite an experience <laughs> It's some of the most beautiful distortion yeah. I've ever heard. I, I like feel it, deeply, deeply moved yes. by that yeah. production in a way that I like haven't really since maybe I first mm -hmm. heard Bjork. Like that, that was that was yeah, beautiful. His his stuff I still think is just incredibly underrated. I think in part because his focus is so heavy on the manipulation of production over time as a compositional tool. Um, you know, he's he's lesser known for like you know, having some kind of melodic hit, like Apex Twin put out Avril 14, and like uh, that drew a lot of people to music they wouldn't have otherwise listened to. Marty, in your listening of, of Clark, do you find that you're you're like, maybe just like little snippets here and there. I'm going to listen to a track and then kind of let that simmer for a bit. Or are you able to, to really uh, dig into a bunch of his work? I, I could definitely see that being true for a lot of people. I think, I think my tolerance for this particular niche is a little higher than most. It's where I spend a lot of my time. It's also, um, you know, Clark is someone I, I, I aspire to be like in some ways I, I write similar music to him in in some ways. Um, so I think I have a higher tolerance even then. Um, you know, if I put an album on of his and it loops back around at the top, I'm probably going to be like, time, time to switch it up a little bit and then <laughs> take a breather. I, I like to imagine you just like sitting and listening to that one song and then it ending and you being like, again, again. <laughs> I definitely have done that.
is the thing that's incorrect about it? Is it the ostinato or and like that approach of like building composition based on production versus traditional composition techniques? Or is it is it that that production trick that you're talking about with the limiter? Or is it I neither? think it's I think it's all of the above is really what brought it to mind. It's kind of um uh yeah it's it's really it's the production is its own beast that it, it, he's doing he's using these tools in a way that creatively destroys what you're hearing and that feels incorrect he's also mm-hmm. n- never really altering any of the melodic or harmonic contents there's not really there's not really a song happening at all i even wrote carter mm-hmm. back when i was like i think i want to do this piece but i don't know if we can call it a song actually because mm. it's it's not there's a, you know there's one time where you hear one spoken word it's not even a lyric or he says and i still miss you which gives some emotional context for the whole thing but it's you know it's very very far from being a song so that feels incorrect and then like carter mentioned in terms of the form within the context of production you know he gives away the what might traditionally be called the 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 peak or the climax of the tune like 30% of the way into the tune. Mm-hmm. That's completely incorrect. <laughs> but I think he is writing a story with this sound that is correct in its own way. And that is the thing that relates back to, to me, relates directly back to my understanding of, of Lorfe, your understanding of incorrect music, which is like, it's not about whether it's wrong it's about whether it's incorrect to convention Mm -hmm. and the ways in which you can break out of convention creatively to do something that's more interesting than than something you've you've heard Laura thank you so much for taking the time joining us on this episode to talk songs that do something incorrectly. Please, though, I'm, I'm dying to know what's going on with Arthur Moon, what's going on with you musically. You got any shows coming up? I know we're kind of getting back out there and uh, starting to play, but any new music coming up? Where can people find you? The floor is yours. Thank you. Uh, we are playing a show. I mean, you know, if, if I guess, <laughs> depending on what stuff um september 29th at elsewhere um wear a mask uh it'll be great um (laughs) and uh we are putting lots of music out we have four three singles out from our uh upcoming thing and there's another one coming out on friday which is the 20th which is maybe before you'll put this out so i don't know it'll maybe be out it's called back to the future it's like i think the poppiest thing we've ever done. Is that right, Martin? Yeah, it's it's what we might think of as pop. Nice. Plenty incorrect about that one, nice. that's for sure. Yeah, there's some of those like really bonkers hockets that Marty was talking about on that tune that we still haven't like totally figured out how to perform <laughs> yet, but we're getting there. Um, and then uh, um, we're, we're sort of releasing our album in two parts. So we're doing an A-side release, which will be um, right before our show at Elsewhere. 
and then um, the B side of the album will come out with vinyl um, early in next calendar nice. year. Um, yeah, so keep your eyes peeled for that. And that's going to do it for this episode of Themes and Variation. Thank you so much for listening. We want to know your favorite songs that do something incorrectly. So as always, there is a link to a Spotify community playlist in our show notes. Feel free to add your selections there. If you'd like to support the show, please consider giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to take that support up another level, consider subscribing to soundfly.com for all of your music learning needs. Remember to use the discount code back to work to take 20% off a monthly or annual subscription. And as a special treat, we're going to play this one out with the Arthur Moon track Back to the Future. And we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode and a new theme.